We are in Matthew chapter 6. This portion of Scripture is the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus teaching His disciples. We're in the Lord's Prayer, which comes in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day Your daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're in the series this summer that Pastor Ron began a few weeks ago on, on prayer and living dependently, living in dependency upon God. Last week, Pastor Jason shared with us the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, and, and today we're going to read the, the second verse of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, verse 10. Um, we're just going to dive right in this morning and talk a little bit about the context of where, this, where the Lord's Prayer, where this prayer that Jesus taught His disciples, uh, where that fits in with the rest of what Jesus is talking about. Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is a... Uh, uh, extended discourse that we often refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, seeing large crowds, it says in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, uh, went up onto a mountain, and there his disciples came. And so that answers the question for us, who in this whole discourse, this section that we, we have in Scripture, Matthew 5 through 7, answers the question who Jesus is talking to. It says right there in, in Matthew 5, 1, that Jesus is talking to his disciples. He began to teach his disciples, those who were following him. Chapter 6 starts a new section within this longer message, this longer sermon. Um, and it begins with this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father is, who is in heaven. Jesus gives a few examples of uh, people who not to be like. He says, do not be like the hypocrites when you give. Um, so giving was a, a thing that his disciples were to be different than, than those around them. His disciples were to, in the way that they would give, would be different than, um, than the hypocrites, people who would do it just for show. And then he talks also about prayer. He says, do not be like the hypocrites who like to to go and stand out in public and, and say their prayers publicly for people to hear them and, um, so that they can build up themselves um, and have pride because of their prayers, the way that they pray. And then Jesus contrasts not only the way He would like His disciples to pray in contrast with the hypocrites, but the Gentiles. He says, um, do not be like the Gentiles who heap up uh, many prayers, or excuse me, who heap up empty phrases the reason being that they do this um, is because they think they will be heard by their gods because of their many words. So he's, Jesus is teaching his disciples and says, don't be like these Gentiles, non-Jews, uh, Greek. Uh, Greeks is another way they refer to that. Don't be like these people who's, who add on, tag on empty phrases that have no meaning, that have no heart behind them. But Jesus then proceeds to give them a model, an example to follow. As Pastor Jason shared, uh, explained last Sunday, this was not to be uh, a prayer that they were to memorize and recite over and over, word for word. It wasn't that wasn't Jesus' intention. Uh, 
Um, it's not a, this isn't a bad prayer to pray uh, as long as it's coming from a heart that sincerely means it. The reason Jesus gave this prayer was to be uh, to teach them how to pray, not what to pray. The prayer starts in verse 9, indicating uh, the one to whom the prayer is addressed. It starts with our Father. And then it continues, verse 9 continues with a petition, a request that is to be made to God the Father. Um, and that request is, hallowed be your name. And that brings us to verse 10, where we're, we're going to spend our time this morning. Verse 10 says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just like the request in verse 9, uh, these, these petitions or requests that we have in verse 10, two of them here, they, they share the same Greek tense as hallowed be your name, the one before that. Um, I don't know a lot of Greek. The tense is aortist imperative. Um, but the way that we would express that today would be to add the words may or let in front of each of the petitions, in front of the request. It says in, in the ESV footnotes, um, let your name, excuse me, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, or may your, uh, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. This is a request or a petition that has a sense of urgency to it in the one who prays it. Now let's talk a little bit about the content of these two petitions that we see. What, what is being said here? What is Jesus talking about when he says, your, king, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? First, your kingdom come. This idea of kingdom... Jesus is referring to the kingdom of God. The word kingdom points to the fact that God is a king. He's not just a king. He is the king. He is the, the ultimate ruler in the universe. His authority over all things is supreme. He reigns with divine sovereignty over absolutely everything. God is the king. And the kingdom refers to his sphere of reign and his sphere of rule. Everything that God rules over is his kingdom. This concept of the kingdom of God uh, and, and a king plays this, played a significant role in the history of the people of Israel. Initially, when Israel was set, up, set apart as God's chosen people, in essence, God was their king. He was their ruler. He was their protector. He was the one that gave them laws to follow and live by. He was their judge. He was the one that uh, they were to revere, the one that they were to obey. God was the one they looked to for guidance and help and safety. But as time went on, His people, the people of Israel, weren't satisfied with God as their king. They weren't content to have the ultimate king, the ruler of the universe, as their king. Instead, they wanted to be like the other nations around them. They wanted to have a king that they could see. Someone who um, could physically be before them and be their representative to go fight their battles um, and to judge them. And so God allowed this. God permitted them to have a king, permitted them to to have their heart's desires in this case. God allowed them to have a king. And beginning with Saul, 
There was a long line of kings that would reign, one after the other, for generation after generation. One human king after another. God did not forego His rule and His reign. He continued to be there. The Israelites still continued to be His people. And He exerted power and influence in, in every, every way in their existence. But He allowed there to be a, a human king as well. The king uh, that would reign after Saul, David, would become the most significant king in all of the Old Testament time period. Thousands of years, people would look back to King David as, as the, the king by which all other kings were to be measured against. David's importance was due in large part to uh, the fact that God made a special covenant with David. He made a special promise that God would fulfill um, through David. And this promise that God gave to David was that David would have a royal dynasty that would last forever. God would cause it to happen that uh, David's uh, descendants would be on the throne after him and that this this dynasty would last forever. It would be an eternal reign um, of the family of David. This covenant, this covenant promise finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus, who actually was a descendant of David. Jesus could trace his family line all the way back to King David. And so being a descendant of David, uh, he was he was an heir of this. Jesus is referred to in First Timothy and in Revelation as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant that God made with David. And Jesus' reign is an eternal reign. Unlike all the other kings that came before him who who would reign for a set period of time for a number of years and would either be overthrown or would be killed, Jesus' reign is is eternal and lasts forever. While Jesus was on the earth, um, as he would travel around in his earthly ministry, his public ministry, the kingdom of God was a theme that he spoke of over and over again. Repeatedly, Jesus would mention the kingdom of God. In, in the book of Matthew, it, he referred to it as, uh, the, Matthew refers to it as the kingdom of heaven because of the, the reverence in which they had for God's name. They didn't use God's name. They said instead of kingdom of God, they said kingdom of heaven. But Jesus would talk of this kingdom many times over and over again throughout his earthly ministry the question to ask is why why did jesus spend so much time talking about the kingdom of god what was its significance what was jesus wanting to convey and teach to the people that he was ministering to i think in part the reason jesus talked about the kingdom of god so much was because the Jewish people in that time and in that place in the first century needed to have their their brains switched as to what the kingdom of God was. They needed to have a paradigm shift about the, the nature and essence of the kingdom. You see, at that point, the people of Israel, the way that they were living, the the political existence that they had at that time wasn't like it used to be when they were a sovereign nation um, under a king that, and they could do as they pleased. That's not what it was like in the first century. During that period of time, 
the Israelites, the people of God, the, the Jewish nation, was subject under the Roman government. They were, uh, the Romans had control and were, had invaded and had taken over a, a lot of countries, including Israel. And so the, the people there were ruled and oppressed by this Roman government. Because of this, the people uh, were eager for the arrival of God's Messiah. God had promised, prophesied centuries before that someone would come, uh, the anointed one, the king, the Messiah, who would set them free from oppression, from their, set them free from the chains of their enemies. And so the people of God were eager for this. They were uh, anticipating and, and waiting expectantly for this king to come who would uh, set them free from oppression by the Romans. They assumed, though, that when this king, this promised king would come, he would lead them to political and military victory over their present enemies, the Romans. Some of them, when Jesus came on the scene, some of them did have one thing right, that Jesus was that king. Some of them acknowledged Jesus as king. This is evidenced on a couple of occasions we can see. After feeding, Jesus fed the 5,000. The scripture text says that the the people were about to take Jesus by force and make him their king in John 6, 15. Um, Jesus perceived that they were going to take him physically and place him before the rest of the people and anoint him as the king. Um, expecting that he would then go and set them free from the Romans. Again, we see this, this mindset that the people had about Jesus being a political and military leader when Jesus comes to Jerusalem the final time. Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and the people, the multitude there, throws palm branches out before him on the road and throws their, lays their coats down before him. And they shout, Hosanna, save now. They were expecting Jesus to come, um, as was prophesied in the Old Testament, to come and be their king, their political king, their military king. But what they were mistaken about was that Jesus' kingship at this stage in redemption history was spiritual in nature. It wasn't political. It wasn't military. Jesus hadn't come to rule in in a way of... Uh, by force and might of armies and, and exertion of physical power um, over other countries, other nations. Jesus hadn't come to be a political leader that would uh, make agreements with other political leaders around the known world at that time. That's not what Jesus' kingship was like. Jesus' kingship, on the other hand, was spiritual in nature. We're going to take a few minutes here and look at some different passages, and I'd like you to turn with me, and we'll see more about this spiritual nature of Jesus' kingship. First thing we see is that God's kingdom isn't confined to a specific location. Turn to Luke 17, 20 and 21. Luke 17, 20 and 21. It says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. 
Jesus is saying here, it's Pharisees, that's not what you think. The kingdom of God isn't going to be a, a location that can be seen or a, a specific nation that, that can be seen and pointed to and said, here, there's, there's the kingdom of God in, in this place at this time. But Jesus said that the kingdom of God is in fact in your midst right now. It's in your very presence that this reign of God exists. And then turn to John 18:36. John 18:36 It says Jesus answered to them My kingdom is not of this world if my kingdom were of this world my servants would have been fighting that I might not have been delivered over to the Jews but my kingdom is not from the world Jesus here is is standing before Pilate um, and is being questioned by Pilate the Jews wanting him to be crucified and Pilate having to decide what should I do with Jesus? Should I follow what they say and have him crucified, or should I set him free? And so Jesus is replying to Pilate and talking to him and explaining to him in response and saying, Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is saying that it's not the way that we think of other kingdoms that have geographic boundaries, that have uh, specific uh, rules for, for one kingdom over the other that is governed by a, a set of of laws and enforced by uh, military and things like that. It's not, it's not a kingdom in the sense that you think of it. Jesus says, my kingdom is not the way of this world. Um, God's kingdom is not confined to a specific location. The other thing we see about the kingdom of God is that uh, the kingdom doesn't belong to a specific nationality. The Jews had been familiar with uh, their kingdom of Israel because of their heritage, because of their lineage as Jews. But the Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, uh, belonged to those who, uh, who met sp- specific spiritual requirements. Turn to Matthew 3, uh, Matthew chapter 3, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said it's not, not the Jews who's, who have rights to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, but those who are poor in spirit. And then in verse 10 it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, not a specific nationality, uh, but those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, to them belong the kingdom of heaven. And then in, in same in chapter 5, verse 20, says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus here didn't say you have to belong to a certain race of people to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. But He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then finally, this the spiritual nature of Jesus is seen in that the entrance into God's kingdom is not based on political allegiance, but on faith in one's heart. Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, starting at verse 3. Jesus is speaking, speaking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, and, and says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. And then in verse 5, a couple verses down, Jesus answered, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Entrance into the kingdom isn't based on allegiance to Jesus in a political sense and saying, uh, I will follow Jesus on a, on a human, superficial level as Him as my King, irregardless of what's in my heart. Jesus here says, if you want to see the kingdom, if you want to enter the kingdom, you need to be born again. God needs to do a work in your heart so that, that you are transformed and changed. So much so that it's, it's as though you have been born again. A fresh start, starting over again on a, spirit, on a spiritual way. And this happens through faith. So entrance into the kingdom of God isn't based on political allegiance, but, but because of what's in your heart. Faith in one's heart. Let's turn now to the, to the second petition. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. Jesus is speaking again to His Father as a, as a prayer, a model prayer, addressing God the Father. It's God's will that is to be done. The will of God is what Jesus is referring to. In Scripture, there can be different ways that, that Scripture talks about the will of God and what it means by the will of God. In some instances, the will of God simply means what God desires, what pleases God, um, what His, His attitude is, His demeanor about certain things. In some instances, it can can also refer to that which is in line with God's moral character and His commands. When God gives a command, it is His will that that be obeyed. So we can say that when, when God gives a command, His commands are an expression of His will. It also can refer to that which God has ordained to actually take place. Things that we, we don't always know. Rarely do we know what, what in the future is going to take place. But God has foreordained what is going to happen in the future. And these things can also be referred to as God's will. It is God's will that, um, that nations should rise and that nations should fall. It is, it is God's will that uh, what will happen to you tomorrow when you wake up, what happens throughout your day, God has ordained where you will be, what will happen to you. This is another way that God's will can be referred to in the Bible. When Jesus here gives them a, a model, an example of how to pray in saying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus, throughout His ministry, didn't just teach them this um, and just didn't give them instruction to, to pray this way. Jesus actually lived this out. Jesus lived out the will of God in His desire to follow what His Father desired. Um, at a young age, even at a young age, Jesus was concerned with doing what his father wanted. Um, turn to Luke 2, Luke chapter 2, verse 49. Jesus' parents uh, and his family came to Jerusalem, and his parents left. Uh, thinking that he was with someone else in their group, but they found out that he, he wasn't there with them. And so 
they went back and looked for Jesus for, it says, for three days. And they finally found Him. And this is what Jesus said to them in verse 49. It says, And He said to them, Why were you looking for Me? Did you not know that I must be in My Father's house? Even at, at 12 years old, Jesus showed interest and concern with being about His Father's business, being in His Father's house, doing what, what His Father, God the Father, cared about. During His earthly ministry, when Jesus was older, He started His ministry at age 33, Jesus demonstrating, demonstrated His unwavering commitment and intense desire to fulfill that which God the Father wanted Him to do. Turn to John 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and accomplish His work. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that doing the will of the Father, accomplishing what God the Father wanted, was what sustained Him. Everything else in His life took a back seat to doing what God wanted, to following after the plan that God had laid out for Jesus' life while He was here on this earth. Jesus said, my food, my sustenance is to do the will of God, is to follow after God's will. And then finally, even, even when Jesus was facing the certainty of excruciating suffering and death and the reality of bearing God's wrath because of sin upon Himself, His deepest longing was to do what pleased the Father. Turn to Luke 22, verse 42. Jesus is, is praying in the garden before He's arrested um, and goes a, a distance away from, from some of His other disciples and is praying there. And in verse 42, Jesus says, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. When Jesus referred to the cup, He was referring to uh, the cup of God's wrath that He knew He would have to bear on Himself, that, that the wrath of God He would have to, that would be poured upon Him uh, when He was crucified on the cross. And knowing this, knowing full well what was to come, what was ahead of Him, Jesus' deepest desire, um, even more than that, this cup would pass, which He which He asked for. If there's a way, God, um, for this cup to pass for me, but but ultimately His deep, deepest desire. He said, not my will, but yours be done. Doing His Father's will, even to the point of death and suffering God's wrath for sin on Himself. So now that we've, we've talked a little bit more about the content of these petitions, your kingdom come, your will be done, let's look a little bit into the, the nature of these requests. What we see in the, the types of things that Jesus is saying here. Just like in, in verse 9, we're back in Matthew chapter 6. Just like in verse 9, um, hallowed be your name. These two are also petitions, requests that, uh, that Jesus gives. But the interesting thing is that these, these requests aren't requests for oneself. They're not uh, self-centered requests. If you think of children... Oftentimes when they 
come with a request, it's something for them. They, they have a desire, and so they will, if they can't fulfill it themselves, they will go and ask someone to help them with that or to give them. Even the littlest, littlest kids will grab and take. Um, and when they learn to ask, it'll, oftentimes the requests will be uh, selfish in nature, self-centered in what they ask for. But even we, even, even, even us here this morning, Often in our prayers, we might do all right at thanking God for blessings and expressing gratitude for His grace to us in circumstances of life. But oftentimes, right afterwards, right after we're done thanking God, we'll go, go again to make a request that benefits us, that is centered on us and centered on what we want. These requests, on the other hand, that Jesus is teaching His disciples to pray aren't self-centered. Um, they're not, even, they're not even intercessory prayers for someone else that we love, which, which is part of prayer as well. But these, these requests, these petitions, are God-centered prayers that have the purpose of giving glory to God. They are for the purpose that God would be magnified and that His purposes, His kingdom would come. It's not about us, but about God being magnified. There's a danger that we need to be on, on the lookout for um, especially for those who have grown up in a church and in a church culture where God-centeredness and gospel-centeredness is the norm, where that's common, where, where it is a, a common thing for people to pray and act and teach and things all about, uh, God, about God being the center of, of Christian life and the gospel being at the center of those things. There's a danger for those that have grown up from start to finish, but, but for all of us as well. And the danger is this. It can be so easy for us, growing up and being a part of that church culture, that type of uh, culture, to, to use certain words and phrases that are good, that are God-centered, that are gospel-centered. But when you pray them, you never, you never mean them. You've learned to use them. You know how to say things correctly. But in your heart, there's no meaning behind it. We can learn how to imitate certain patterns of speech and the way that we talk and, and, and behavior and the way that we live, but we will never internalize them into our hearts. We can learn and explain certain concepts, certain truths um, about God and His Word, but, but never believe them and love them in our hearts. When it comes to prayer... It is true that, that how we pray matters. Um, the words we use matter. The, how we phrase things matters. Jesus here is giving the disciples a pattern to follow after, uh, a format, so to speak, of, of how to pray. So in, to some degree, form matters in the Christian life, in, in prayer. Uh, but an even bigger issue than the form, than the, than the how to pray is what's going on in our hearts when we pray. When you, when you offer requests and things like that to God, what's happening in your heart? What do you really desire deep down at the deepest level of your heart? We can pray God-centered prayers, just like this prayer that Jesus is giving as an example, offering requests that are for God's benefit and not our own. But God-centered prayers have absolutely no significance unless they are an outward expression of a heart 
and will that are centered on God. Do you, do you want the rule and reign of God to, to be manifested in your life and the life of people around you? What do you, what do you want more? Do you want your will to be done or do you want God's will to be done? These are things to look into your own heart and ask, what do I really want? Ultimately, it boils down to this. Has God changed your heart to such a degree that, that your greatest joy and the deepest desire of your heart is that God would receive the glory? Is that what you want the most? Is that what your heart longs for? What gives you the most joy? When that is true, then, then this pattern that Jesus gives you finds its, its connection. Not only in form, but also in our hearts. I'm going to ask the, the worship team to come on up as I have a few, a few last things to share. The reason we can make requests like these that Jesus gives, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it in, is in heaven, the reason we can still pray this today, things like this, is because um, God's, God's kingdom has not come in its fullness. One day, the, the kingdom of this world, as it says in Revelation, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. That is what we have to look forward to in the future. The day when every person will recognize the crucified Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They will hit, acknowledge His kingship. Although, when that day comes, some will acknowledge it with joy in their hearts, and some will acknowledge Jesus' kingship with hatred in their hearts towards Him. They will be forced to acknowledge He really is the King, but they will not like it in their hearts. We can make requests like this uh, because here on earth, rather than God's will being obeyed, God's will is, is scorned and spurned and laughed at. But there, there is hope. Even though the world around us is broken and, and we have the, the remnants of this sinful nature inside of us that want our own way rather than God's way, that would rather have our kingdom be the true kingdom than God's kingdom, that would rather have our will be done than God's will be done, there's hope for us. There's hope here in this life. The reason is because God is in the business of, of turning scoffers into servants. He's able to turn those who laugh at Him and His will into people who love His will and live, live for His will. God is now here in this life through the proclamation of the Gospel, through the, the telling of the good news, using that to transform people who rebel against His kingship and to people who rejoice in His kingship. This is, this is good news for us here today. In our lives, as we go from here, it is good news for us that God is in the business of, of transformation through the Gospel. So that, that these, these types of prayers that God, uh, that Jesus has instructed us to pray, these types of prayers can be a true expression of what's in our heart. There's hope for transformation. If, the, if you were here today saying, that's not my desire. I don't, I don't care about God's kingdom. I don't care about God's will. 
but you recognize that you want that. There is hope for you through the gospel of Jesus. The good news is that Jesus comes and through the Holy Spirit changes and transforms lives. But there's also good news in light of what what is going to be happening here in this place over these next five days. There's going to be um, many children here that that we have the opportunity as a church to minister to, to share the gospel to, to share the good news of Jesus with. And there's good news that, that God is in the business of changing and transforming hearts in this way. And so let us pray. Not with, uh, not merely uttering empty phrases like Jesus was contrasting earlier. Uh, not empty phrases that have no connection with our heart and are just merely outward phrases that our mouth utters. But let us offer, offer prayers with hearts full of faith, full of dependency on God to accomplish His purposes, uh, to, to rest in God, sending His kingdom, working, bringing His kingdom through the message of what Jesus has done. And then let us go forth. Once this has resonated in your hearts and you have come to see the reality of what Christ does um, in bringing His rule and His reign, His kingdom into the hearts of people, this should cause us to go forth, to go out from this place this week and, and to our neighbors and to our families and relatives, all those who have not yet come to, to rest in God's rule and reign through Jesus in their life, this should cause us to go, f- go forth and to share the message of the gospel. Jesus, Jesus said, or Paul said about the gospel, um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. It is the power of the gospel to, to change hearts, change children's hearts from those who are in rebellion against God to those who rejoice in God's kingdom. God's kingship in their life. And so um, let's, let's celebrate now and let's praise God for what He has done. Let's stand together and sing, uh, Let Your Kingdom Come. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning that You uh, have given us Your Son, Jesus, and You have given us Your Word by which we can hear the good news of Jesus. And, and because of the Gospel, God, You have done a work in many of our hearts here this morning to change us, change our wills so that what we want is Your will rather than ours, so that we desire Your kingdom to come rather than our own rule of our lives. Father, we ask that You would help us as we go forth from here, um, that you, your, your cause, God, would, would transform our hearts, would transform our motivation. That Your cause in bringing about Your kingdom all around the world would become our heart's desire. And that, God, You would mobilize us, that You would use us in any way, whatever the test, God, that You would use us to, to be a part of what You're doing. We thank You for Your grace in, in allowing that. And we ask for Your help today, this week, and in the weeks to come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go